Psalm 19. The word of God reads, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is a great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Um, last week we looked at chapter 2 and out of the seven letters to the seven churches uh, the church of Ephesus is the one for which I will spend two weeks on and the rest of them will cover a Sunday apiece we left off last week with the church of Ephesus and the Lord commending them for being doctrinally astute, biblically sound, and a group of people that rejected heretics. But he said, I have something against you. You've left your first love. So this morning, the title of the message is The Remedy for Returning to Your First Love. There's a typo there. It says returning to your fist love. And that's because my uh, wonderful, blessed assistant is out of town to attend to the death of her grandmother, so you're left with my administrative skills, so there you go. <laughs> my, my apologies. But let's begin reading here in chapter 2. I'll read all seven verses, and we'll look into verses 4 through 7 this morning. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, 
I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Please join me in prayer as we ask the Lord to bless our time and study this morning. Our glorious, heavenly, mighty Father, we come to you because of the finished work of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we enter now into this glorious passage of Scripture, and I ask for the empowering of your Holy Spirit to anoint and enable me to clearly communicate your truth to your people. I pray that you would transform hearts today. I pray that by your grace, you would bring those that are already yours to the place of first love relationship. That there will be repentance where there needs to be repentance. There will be remembering where there must be remembering. That there'll be a doing where there must be a doing of the first works for which we did when we were newly saved. And for those who entered in this morning who perhaps think they know who you are but merely know of you, uh, may you today transform their hearts. May you grant them the grace and the ability to repent and believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. We pray in his mighty name. Amen. Speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus, Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Once the church of Ephesus received this warning, they remained unalert. They watched for ravenous wolves. They pointed out teachers of carnality. They were not afraid of enemies of the truth, the destroyers of the gospel, and those who sabotage and pervert doctrine. They stood against it because they stood for truth. They had no problem pointing out a heretic. They had no problem ejecting the falsehoods that were being peddled and then ejecting the heretic himself. This church was doing exactly what they were called to do. Having been warned and instructed by the Apostle Paul years later are still on the alert and therefore commended by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we looked at that that commendation last week in detail. So being motivated and self-disciplined as they were, they taught the word of God and they equipped the saints for the work of ministry. They assisted one another. They did the work of the ministry together minus any lazy, erratic members. We don't see lazy, lethargic members here. They were engaged. They were engaged together. This was a church, in other words, that demonstrated true faith. They were well-grounded in sound doctrine. They were theologically discriminating. That's a problem with the church today. They don't discriminate theologically because all roads don't lead to heaven, beloved. You that I know, know that. In case you're visiting here today and you think all roads lead to heaven, pay attention. 
because they don't. There's one way to be saved, and it's through Jesus Christ alone. This group of of Ephesus would not endure evil men. They did not tolerate peddlers of another gospel, and there were many in this day. In the realm of theological debate, they remained consistent and uncompromised. Doctrinal error would not be tolerated in the church of Ephesus. And they were surrounded, by the way, by paganism. The temple of Diana was there. That city made their money by way of the temple. When they they heard of theological error, the whistle blew as they exposed the heretics of the day. In other words, they didn't compromise in a very pagan-centered city in order to get the people into the pews. No entertainment here, beloved. Now, I know I harp on this a lot, and there's a reason, because so many people are ignorant of it. I know that you probably think that I'm exaggerating half the time. But let me read something from the uh, paper this week that a friend gave me. This is a church service. Slinky service. Each new participant receives a rainbow-colored slinky. This is what you get when you come through the door of the church. It's requested that you bring the slinky to every worship celebration and use it as the Spirit leads. How on earth the Holy Spirit leads in slinky playing, I don't know. The rainbow slinky reminds us of the promise that God attached to the rainbow. The flow of the slinky reminds us of the flow of God's Holy Spirit in the Christian life that we share. Remaining in pews, it's optional here. Participants are asked to dance and sing and move as the Spirit leads them in the pews or aisles as they play with their slinky. Come one and come all. That's in the paper. No slinky ministry in Ephesus. They would not compromise. But however, think about it. You can be steadfast in the truth, you can serve, you can sacrifice, and you can suffer for the namesake of Christ, and although this church remained on guard and maintained purity to apostolic teaching, they had abandoned their first love. Verse 4, but I have this against you, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Notice again, Jesus didn't say you have no love, the emphasis here is placed on the adjective first. The love that has been abandoned is the love that was first expressed at the beginning for Christ first. And as a result, love for one another. Many people, many commentators believe, well, this is a love for one another. Well, look, they go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. If you lose a first love for Jesus Christ, you will lose a love for one another. It's a tautology. They go hand in hand. It's the same way of, of saying the same thing in a different manner. And in addition to that, this first love for Christ was obviously no longer expressed by way of their zeal in witnessing Jesus Christ to this pagan world that surrounded them. I believe that they had a habit of now secluding themselves from the pagan world, perhaps. But as we see, love for Christ and his people They go hand in hand. We must not forget that. So we honor his name by our true confession as well as reflecting his love as we love one another. 
according to the word of God. And don't forget, the love of Christ manifests itself in different ways. It expresses itself differently. It's not all the mushy-gushy, you know, type of love. The love expresses itself through reproof, through correction. That's a form of love. Weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, serving, helping, humbling oneself. And a love for Christ also gives rise in testifying of Christ to those that are lost and dying and don't have Christ who think that this message is foolishness. The Bible says that the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. It's foolishness to those who are on the road to hell because it's the only way, it's the only provision that God has provided. So the Ephesian believers here, it seems, were so busy maintaining their separation from the world, while they did indeed stand for truth, they were neglecting here adoration and testimony of the one who called them out of the world. And we must beware. Labor is no substitute for love. Purity is no substitute for passion. We must maintain love and passion for Jesus Christ while we labor, while we do the work of the ministry. So the church must have both if we're going to please our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's only as we love fervently that we can serve him faithfully. And that love begins by loving in him in return. And we can only love him because he first loved us. So our love of him and our love for him must be pure. It must be, as Paul said, incorruptible. And that was the closing line of his original letter to the church of Ephesus. In chapter 6, verse 24, he said, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. Incorruptible. Incorruptible comes from a word that means un, of unending existence. Never ending. And it's strengthened from another word that means to pine or waste away. To shrivel or wither, to die. Kind of like food will rot in your refrigerator if you leave it untouched for six weeks. So this then is a love that doesn't shrivel, doesn't wither, doesn't die, but is unending. The love of our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. So here now with a yearning heart, Jesus entreats the church of Ephesus and he provides a solution now for an abandoned or detached love from Christ first and one another, I'm sure, as a result of that. So he proceeds now to prescribe the steps back to that honeymoon stage, if you will. In a very practical manner, this is how, beloved, you once again draw near to Christ. The following remedy is the solution in how to rekindle lost passion for Jesus Christ. Now, if you're not there today, you either have been or you likely will to some degree because you are only human. So you're going to want to take notes this morning. Notice the remedy. Remember, therefore, verse 5, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The imperatives here are instructive. Remember, repent, and repeat. Remember, repent, and then do those things you did at first. Repeat those things. 
So this defines for us what is required. This defines for us what is absolutely necessary to regain that which has been lost. It's an abandoned love. So the imperatives are all part of one single action. It's designed to keep them from Christ's judgment. Not eternal judgment. But this is judgment that would effectively remove them as his representatives here on the earth. Notice step one. Step one in in, in regaining a, a lost or abandoned love for Christ is to remember. Remember. It means to exercise your memory. Recall past feelings. Bring to mind past actions, but not in a passive sense. In a proactive manner. Remember is literally keep on remembering. Keep on remembering what it is that they have lost and then cultivate a desire to regain that close communion with Christ and one another once again. Remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. In other words, remember back when you first came to faith in Christ. Remember the excitement. Remember the passion. It's a present imperative command which stresses this ongoing, continuous mental remembering being engaged in our mind. Alexander Strzok comments on this, and he said, quote, it is not sentimental daydreaming about the good old days with no intention to act. It requires making the effort to recall past joys, deeds, attitudes, and experiences in the life of the church in order to repeat them and then act upon them. Do you, beloved, remember that initial excitement as a new believer? Do you remember how, as they say, you were so like uh, on fire? That's the term we use. Are you on fire for Jesus? <laughs> remember how you were full of excitement and passion every time you opened the Word of God? I mean, it's, it had something to say to you every time you opened the pages of Holy Writ. When you prayed, it's like the Lord opened up the doors, just blew open the doors of heaven. In every corner you turn, man, there was God's providential grace just putting this person here and this person here and this happened and that happened and you're just rejoicing and you feel like you're so close to him. Remember? Remember every time you saw a need either inside or outside of the church, you ministered in the name of Christ? Remember? Remember? You knew he had done so much for you. You understood Calvary as much as you're able to understand Calvary here in light of his holiness compared to your wretchedness and that you need a savior. So you had to serve him. You had to act. So we too must recollect these feelings, beloved. We must recall these actions and then once again act upon them. Can you remember a time like that? Has that thinking waned? I remember when the Lord saved me. I remember, as I look back now, I I didn't know what was going on then, but I remember him just breaking me down, drawing me near to himself. And one thing I knew early on is I understood something about sovereign grace because I know I wasn't seeking Jesus. (laughs) He was seeking me out and he found me. And he drew me. 
And as I would open up the word of God, I I was drawn into the word of God. I understood something of the power and the grace and the holiness of Almighty God and the redemptive purposes of God in Christ. And I was broken. I would, I'd be standing at the doors of the church just waiting for them to open. (laughs) I'd rush in, I'd sit in the front row, I'd take copious notes, I'd go home and file them away, carry three by five cards with scriptures, memorizing scriptures, I'd go to work. Listening to what's called Christian radio, trying to discern through the wheat and the chaff. (laughs) taking notes, learning. I'd go home and I'd study scripture and I, wore, I have a shelf in my house with all these worn out Bibles. I was just shredding through Bibles. They're just worn out. I just wanted to know the truth. Then I was introduced to expository preaching. And then I was like, man, that's what preaching is. So I only saw guys who taught expositionally, verse by verse. This is what it says. This is what it means what it sa- by what it says. You read it, you teach it, you repeat I was drawn in and I would listen to the word of God and just weep. You remember a time like that? You remember a time something like that? Do you still have a love for Christ like that? It's been well said that memory is the handmaid of revival. Memory is the handmaid of revival. I mean, do you remember the joy that was yours in Christ? Just him alone. The reality of the person and the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf personally, you and him. Man, I, I remember coming home from the end, at the end of the day from work, and if I didn't witness the gospel to somebody every day, I, feel like I felt like a complete failure. I, I had a little something, you know, my theology was a little messed up regarding God's sovereignty and divine appointments and all that stuff. So a lot of it was just beating myself up for nothing. But I'll never forget a day that I went to get a pair of my work boots resold at a uh, cobbler, which was, used to be about a half mile away from here. And I walked in there and dropped my boots off. I remember meeting this guy, hardworking guy, and all week this guy was on my mind. I said, man, I, I can't wait to get back to this guy. So I prayed for him all week. I said, Lord, I want to pray that you'll provide for me an opportunity to share your glorious gospel with this guy. So I get back there, standing in line, a few customers before me, pay for my boots, pick up my boots, look at him, he looks at me, I kind of look like the RCA dog, scratch my head, turn around, walk out, don't say a word, go home, sit at my kitchen table and go, I just blew an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I gotta go back. So I get in my car and I drive back. So I, there's about three customers ahead of me, so I stand looking at the, sh- at the shoestring rack, of all things, like I'm doing something. He's looking at me all cockeyed. Can I help you? Weren't you just in here? Yes, I was. And I noticed up on the wall, it said, ask me about my higher power. So I said, why don't you tell me about your higher power? <laughs> he goes, my name's Jerry. I'm an alcoholic. I said, okay, what's your belief about God? He told me it was some radical, weird thing. So I start unleashing the gospel of Jesus Christ to him from Isaiah 53. He just stood there like this. He goes, I have never, ever heard that like that before in my life. I go, well, the opportunity that you have is to repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you too shall be saved. And I left. And he didn't come to faith that day. I don't know if he's ever come to faith, but my passion for Christ, that's what I remember. 
Now, as a minister of the gospel for you know, many years later now, I love and proclaim the gospel. I love the Lord. I love teaching you. I love seeing you grow in the, Jesus, in, the, in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. But I often wonder, has my passion for evangelism waned from what it used to be? And some days the answer is yes. So I must remember. I must remember. Remembering the pit from which he dug you out of, beloved. It's not that you were sick with sin and he threw a little grace on there and you exercised whatever to, to synergistically work with God to save yourself. No. It's all monergistic. It's all one-way grace. When you understand you were dead in sins and trespasses and he lifted you up out of the sea of deadness and gave you life, that's when you're thankful that, oh God, you saved a wretch like me. And you're thankful. You remember, has the excitement, has the passion, has the love, has the appreciation waned from what it once was? Begin by remembering. Remembering. Exercise memory. Exercise your memory of that which has been abandoned. Step one. Which leads to step two. Repent. Repent. So remembering from where they had fallen would inevitably lead them to repentance, hopefully. Okay? Remembering who he is and how he has blessed you, it's not enough. There must be a turning of that knowledge into action. Remember. Repent. So without making concerted effort here to change our direction, it will never deepen our relationship to Jesus Christ or get back to that which it once was. D.A. Carson gives a good definition for repentance. What is meant is not merely intellectual change of mind or mere grief, still less doing penance. You know, that's just throwing, that's what Catholics do. They just go give penance. You know, I did this today, I did this today. We'll do this and recite this, blah, 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 blah. Be blessed and go on. But it's a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action, including overtones of grief, which results in fruit in keeping with repentance. So repentance means a change of direction of your life to where you no longer talk so loud and walk so proud. It's a change of the heart. It's, it's a transformation of the mind, a change of the will. It means to head back the other way as things once were. It's coming back to a deep-seated relationship with Jesus. You can know doctrine all day long and abandon your first love. So the fact of the matter is that someone or something has replaced their first love. When we're here, something or someone has replaced our first love. It's not that you don't have a first love any longer. It's just that you have a new first love and it's no longer Jesus Christ. Anything that you love more than Christ is your new first love. Anything that I have passion about that exceeds my passion and love for Christ, that's my new love. What do we talk about most? What engages our mind more than anything else? It may be your job. 
Maybe a relationship, maybe the lack of a relationship, maybe your education, maybe the lack of your education, maybe investments, it may be your house, it may be your family, maybe your vacations, maybe your toys. I remember in 2002, I built this cool custom Harley Davidson motorcycle. I was losing sleep over that thing for about two weeks because I had to get all these parts and get them together. And it's like, I am an idolater. I was an idolater for a couple weeks. I still have that motorcycle, but I don't worship it. (laughs) For two weeks, I did something, man, that my mind was consumed. 2002. It's funny that my daughter remembers it, too. It could be any affection or it could be any sin that takes over having the capacity to entangle or enslave you as well. Proverbs 5.22 says, The iniquities of, a wicked, of, of the wicked ensnare him and he's held fast in the cords of his sin. When he's held by the cords of his sin, a believer that is, he feels like he can't say no to temptation. Such is the curse upon the flesh, as Romans 8 talks about, referred to as bondage to corruption. Do not make, beloved, do not make the mistake of thinking that your heart cannot be deceitfully wicked because Jesus lives there. Okay? Some people believe that here, and I've been hearing that. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it or understand it? See, in Christ, your disposition has been changed. You are a new creature in Christ. The heart was and the heart is the basis of one's character. When you think of heart, anytime you read Jewish writings, when they speak of the heart, they're, they're speaking of the seat of one's thinking. Everything that has to do with your mind, your thinking, your will. That has all been set free in Christ. Those who are outside of Christ, their will is subject to their sin nature. Their will has not been set free to serve, love, and honor Christ. Yours has. That does not mean that a positionally righteous believer is immune to wickedness and deception from within. Period. End of story. The psalmist cries out, David, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep your servant also from presumptuous sin. David cries out to the Lord. David knows that his sins consciously and unconsciously affect what he does. And he prays against both faults. David, a man after God's own own heart, became bound in the cords of his sin. He deceived himself into compromising and calling for Bathsheba, another man's wife, and he committed adultery with her. He tried to convince him to go home and sleep with his wife to rid himself of the consequence of having impregnated her. Uriah wouldn't do it, so David had Uriah killed. 
He was held fast in the cords of his own sin for upward of a year until he repented. Jesus himself said in Mark 7, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. Don't fool yourself. Unbelievers are subject to a nature that knows no better. They're slaves to that nature. They're children of wrath, the Bible says. They have a heart of stone. They're unable to please God, unable to submit to God. They're subject to their nature. As a believer, you've been set free. You have a new nature in Christ. The heart of stone has been removed, replaced with the heart of flesh. We're referred to as friends of God now. But you still have the capacity, beloved, in disobedience to become entrapped to another form of slavery, different from the unbeliever, unbeliever slavery. Are you following me, beloved? This is, this is important. I don't know where this teaching coming from, but it's going around. It's like the Israelites who are prone to two kinds of slavery. Homeborn slavery and unwilling slavery. A homeborn slave is born into a family and serves his life there, and by nature, he submits. He knows no better. He, he doesn't understand freedom of being outside of that which he's become accustomed to. Slave. This, of course, is symbolic of those who are unbelievers. They're perfectly at home with their obsessions. They're perfectly content as slaves of that household. They have no concern for the one true and holy God. The believer can fall into another form of slavery. Unwilling slavery. And this symbolizes the believer who's become a prisoner of war, who's an unwilling slave, but miserable. They've been drawn in by temptation, and because they laid down their weapons and they stopped resisting and fighting, which they have the capacity and ability to do so by the power of God who indwells you, when you willfully disobey, you have the potential to now become a prisoner of war, so to speak. You have capacity to do evil as an unbeliever. Certain temptations have pounded this guy. They've discontinued the attempt to resist evil thoughts, to resist adultery, to resist theft, to resist coveting, to resist envy, slander, gossip. And in the midst of the conflict, they've laid down their weapons out of sheer exhaustion because they're trying to do it in their own strength and then they'll wave the white flag of surrender. They're prisoners. Has their position in Christ changed? No. If you're in Christ, you can't do anything to change your position in Christ if you're truly saved. There's nothing you can do or can't do that changes your position. You can mess up your communion and fall prey to wickedness. Deception. That's why we're called to renew our what? Mind every day in light of the word of God. Renew your heart, mind, synonymous terms. Your will to the objective truth of God. You can be swayed by the deception of one's own heart if it's not kept in check with the word of God. So, that's why Ephesians 3 in that prayer, which I'm going to cite in a little while, Paul talks about 
those who are indwelt by the Spirit may be filled and dwelt by the Spirit so that Christ may dwell there? Well, if the Spirit's there, doesn't Christ dwell there? The word dwell means to settle down and be at home. You can be saved positionally righteous in Christ, but Jesus is not settled down and at home because of deception, perhaps, because of unrepented sin, perhaps, which leads to, perhaps, wickedness. Are we clear? Are we clear? James says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So turning from apathy, turning from indifference, or turning even from idols in drawing near to Christ, remembering from where we have fallen and repenting will be the basis for step three, and that is to repeat. Repeat. This simply means, look, this repentance, getting on your knees and perhaps repenting apathy towards Christ. It could mean getting on your knees and repenting of idolatry, that there's something placed there in the place of Jesus, that abandoned love. So we repeat step three. So this loss of love has been not only abandoned, but it's been replaced. Therefore, the excess baggage that's been picked up along the way, we're called to jettison overboard, throw it overboard. Christ must once again be given first place by notice, doing, repeating. Do the deeds you did at first. So they were instructed to repeat the spiritual activities they did at first. Now, Jesus doesn't specify what those activities are, but we don't have to read too far into the New Testament to discern ourselves what they were. First deeds are what early believers did when they were first saved and they were added to the church. At Pentecost, Peter preached. 3,000 souls were converted, entered uh, part of the church here. They were baptized and folded into the church. And immediately, Acts 2.42, they were continually, notice, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, number one, fellowship, number two, breaking of bread, number three, and prayer, number four. Their dietary staple was the basic doctrinal truths that were taught by the apostles. Correct teaching first. Okay? So biblical truth is essential to the health and the growth of every believer. To the health and growth of every corporate body. It's the word of God that stimulates our hearts to love Christ. And, and, and it's this word that inflames passion for Christ. Some of the Lord's first disciples, remember the two on the road to Emmaus, they walked with Jesus. He had resurrected from the dead. They didn't recognize Jesus in resurrected form. And once Jesus revealed himself and he departs, Luke 24, 32 says, we're not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us. Why did their hearts burn? Because notice, verse 27, beginning with Moses and with the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. That means the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament by that point, of course. He's talking Old Testament, revealing himself to them by way of Old Testament text. Our hearts burn within us, thus the importance of biblical teaching. Another deed that the church of Ephesus would have been maintained in the beginning, like the converts here in Acts 2, would have been close fellowship continually encouraging one another, exhorting one another, reproving one another, 
correcting one another, bearing with one another's burdens, comforting one another through trial and tribulation. And then they came together to break bread. That's what we're going to do today, beloved. We're coming to the table of the Lord together. Individually, but corporately, as the body of Christ. You see, the Lord's table cultivates reverence. Gratitude. When we come to the table of the Lord, it cultivates purity and an anticipation for the Lord's second coming. That's why irregular attendance is detrimental to your growth. Rolling in once a month, twice a month, it's detrimental. Notice there's also a devotion to prayer for early converts in the book of Acts. Prayer was as necessary as breathing to these saints. Prayer personalizes our study. It keeps us thankful and dependent. Usually a person whose love for Christ is waned, he's become unthankful. That's usually where it begins. An unthankful heart. I pray that our prayers will be primarily that of thanksgiving, first and foremost. Individually and corporately. So, beloved, if you've left your first love, get back to the basics. Get back to Bible study, true fellowship where you know people and they know you. Get back to true worship. Back to praying without ceasing. Always being thankful. Just get up thanking God for your salvation. (laughs) Thanking him for your family. Thanking him for your troubles. Thanking him for your trials. Thanking him for the brother or sister who's in your life who gets under your skin. Because God has them there to teach you how to love. It's easy to love believers who are really easy to get along with. Amen? Very easy. I might irritate you. You're commanded to love me. (laughs) You're like, I'm glad you said that, Pastor, because I've been wanting to say that a long time. (laughs) Go back to the basics. Thankless heart kills true spirituality. A thankless heart kills a prioritized love for Christ every time. So in scripture, we hear from Christ. In fellowship, we share in Christ. At the Lord's table, we commune with Christ. And in prayer, we walk with Christ. So this is a relationship. This isn't religion. This is relationship with the living God. Amen? So if the Ephesians would not take these steps back to Christ, notice the Lord adds a course of action, verse 5, or else, he said, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now it's interesting that the city of Ephesus at one time had to relocate because of gradual silting up of the Castor River. It had to literally move. And it's interesting also that we look at each one of the seven letters, there's an analogy similar to that provided to each church. So the Lord says, be strengthened, repent, or I'll remove your lampstand. You will cease being an illuminating light where you stand. You lose your lamp. You lose your light of witness to me of to the world. This is not the second coming of Christ. This is a special coming of Christ, a visitation, so to speak, for the sake of judgment and discipline. For whom the Lord loves, he, he chastens, he disciplines. 
If they don't return to their first love, he'll extinguish their light. He'll blow out the candle. You know, unfortunately, this has occurred in many churches. Congregations, they still gather. Programs are moving, shuffling about. They're active, they're busy, but there's no light being transmitted. At least not spirit-filled, love-filled, biblical love. So you got to break out rainbow slinkies. Step four, remain. So having lovingly rebuked this church, he doesn't completely reduce or pummel them at this point, right? He remains very sensitive, the Lord does, and he concludes with another word of praise. Notice verse six, yet this you do have, beloved church of Ephesus. I commend you for upholding the truth, standing in doctrinal correctness, not being afraid to point out a heretic, you've abandoned your first love. Let me commend you again. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus hates? Yes, he does. Of course he does. Jesus is reminding them, hey, you are my representatives. You are my like-minded ambassadors. I commend you once again. Your heart is indeed akin to mine in the sense that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, the, the etymology behind the Nicolaitans means to conquer the people. Conquer the people. Nikao means to conquer. Laos means, it's from where we get the, it means people, it's from where we get the word laity. You might be Nikao, you might be familiar with uh, Nike or Nike, the Nike missile, your shoes mean to conquer, to conquer the people. Now, whether, whether this derogatory title is applied by Christ himself or it was a title they took upon themselves, nobody really knows. But there was temptation and pressure in this day to, be, to, to, to become involved within the culture. It was dominated by pagan temples, Ephesus was. So the Nicolaitans came in and were teaching that there's no consequence of compromising sin for the believer. None at all. They taught a form of antinomianism, which means no law. See, in Christ, we're not subject to the law, but we're unable to uphold the law. Obey. See, much of the city's economy was dependent upon trade that was associated with the pagan temples in Ephesus. You stand for Christ, you may not work. You get the picture? So these Nicolaitans roll in. Jesus says, I hate their deeds, and I'm glad, and I commend you that you hate their deeds as well. Then he concludes with a word to the churches. He who has an ear, he singular, who has an ear, let him singular hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So here's an invitation to all believers in all churches throughout all time. These seven represent the whole universally throughout all time. Seven is symbolic, completeness. So here we have a summons, if you will, that goes out to all believers throughout all ages. He invites us to carefully hear while we positively and then proactively take heed to his message. You know, their church is like the church of Ephesus. They do have doctrinal zeal. They are busy serving. 
They are living pure lives, and they make a bold stand for the truth. But even positive and biblically focused endeavors like this can breed a decrease in love for Christ. It can happen. We don't want that to happen here, amen? But again, don't confuse uh, having no love because someone chastens you in, in, in a corrective manner, in a loving manner. That's a form of the love of Christ, amen? It's just not this mushiness. The Lord manifests his love in many ways. And that's what we want to be about. Notice the promise, verse 7b. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Notice the promise. All who overcome losing their first love, all who overcome losing that first love will eat from the tree of life, receiving the blessings of God's salvific presence. That's the promise. You know, when Adam sinned, he was driven out of the garden. He was prohibited from eating from the tree of life. Can you imagine eating from the tree of life in a sinful, fallen world and in fallen flesh? Can you imagine that? That'd be a curse. So we see God's judgment along with his mercy. It would be torture to live forever in this fallen world. If I knew I had to look at myself in the mirror for eternity in this condition, that'd be misery. My hope is in the resurrection. My hope is going to be with the Lord. My hope is glory. Because I'm justified, because you're justified in Christ, the penalty of sin has been removed. In your life now, in your sanctification, the power of sin has been removed. You're no longer a slave to that nature as you were before you were a true believer. And what do we hope for? Not to get saved, but to be glorified. Where there's no longer the presence of sin, beloved where we will eat from the tree of life for eternity. You get it? So only when sin is fully removed are we graciously restored to the tree of life. Only in Christ is access to the tree of life regained. Paradise lost in Genesis is regained and even exceeded in the book of Revelation because of Christ. Greater than it was. So the tree of life becomes the bookends of history as far as redemption is concerned, revealed throughout Scripture. Now, since all believers are conquerors, if you're a true believer, you will conquer. You will overcome salvifically. I mean, you will enter heaven, in other words. You will make it there. The reason you will conquer, the reason that you will persevere is because those who are truly saved, he preserves all along the way. You're in his right hand. He preserves you all along the way. Now, You may fall into forms of disobedience along the way, as we all do, but again, he chastens those he loves to conform you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Restored to the tree of life. Now, perhaps you sit here this morning and you're thinking like this. I know I'm saved. As a matter of fact, I've been saved a long time since I was a kid. And I can't think about this returning to a love for Christ like this because I don't think I've abandoned it. I just don't think I've ever had a passionate love for Christ like that. If that's you, there's five disciplines to cultivating or maintaining this love, okay? Briefly. Number one, 
how can I cultivate this kind of love for Christ or how can I maintain this kind of love for Christ? Number one is pray for love. Pray for this love. Paul prayed that the church of Ephesus would know Christ's love. Again, I mentioned this earlier. This is one of my favorite prayers in all of the Bible. And as a matter of fact, on Wednesday night, the group that meets here on Wednesdays prayed this for you, for us. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, Paul started this prayer in chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul. And then he goes on with his long, uh, parenthesized truth of what he's exclaimed in the first two chapters. He's a theologian, right? So now he gets back to the prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, in order that Christ may settle down and be at home. That's what the word dwell means. Katakeoi. To settle down and be at home. Because you see in the previous verse, that he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being. Well, if your inner being is indwelt by the Spirit, doesn't Jesus dwell there then? Well, of course he does. But he won't settle down and be at home in a dirty house. You get it? That he may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That rich or what? Remember those studies in Ephesians if you were here four years ago? Pray like this, beloved. We must pray like this. George Mueller once said, quote, the great fault of the children of God is they do not continue in prayer. They do not go on praying. They do not persevere. If they desire anything for God's glory, they should pray until they get it. Why? Because Jesus promised, abide in me and I in you and your joy will be made full. Abide in me and I in you and ask whatever you will and it will be what? Done for you. When when we abide in Jesus, we think about Jesus, we're in Christ, so we think about Christ, we think about his word, so we pray according to his word and if we pray according to his word, we pray according to his will, if we pray according to his will, he gives us what we want, amen? Amen. Philippians 1, Paul said, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. So these spirit-inspired prayers here are great models for us to emulate when praying for ourselves, when praying for one another, as we pray for Pacific Hope Church. This is a good self-checkup. Here's a question. As a believer, a good self-checkup question. Is my love for Christ growing and overflowing Or is my love for Christ shrinking and dying? If it's shrinking and dying, we've abandoned our first love, amen? So we must remember, we must repent, and we must repeat those things we did at first. And it will begin to overflow. Secondly, study love. Study love from the scriptures. This is not a one-time endeavor here. It's a lifelong process, amen? This is part of growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So by filling your mind and heart with the truth of God's love, along with his requirements for us, required for his redeemed people, we too will grow in love. Or we ought to. 
So first, you know, begin by studying biblical love, who Christ is. Just read the Gospels. You'll see love. You'll see love defined through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's firm. He looked at his disciples with what? Jesus looked at his disciples with anger. Did he stop loving them? No. He still loved them. Be angry and do not sin. That's very difficult for us. There's a fine line there for us. <laughs> Again, Philippians 1.9, and this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Notice that biblical abounding love is rightly understood by way of knowledge, number one, and discernment, number two. The only way that we can have discernment, and some Christians have more than others, it's a spiritual gift, no doubt, but all Christians have discernment because they have the Spirit of God in them. The more you study the Word, if you want to grow in discernment, you study the Word of God. You study the Bible. Knowledge and discernment that your love may abound more and more in just that, knowledge and discernment. You can tell if someone's off with what they're teaching. You'll discern. So this kind of love is anchored in truth. A perceptive love that is not blind. This is not sappy sentimentalism. I've been using that phrase on purpose for the last few weeks. The love of Jesus Christ for one another is not sappy sentimentalism. Love reveals itself in many ways. We help one another grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen? So we weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice and so on. There's a time and place for everything. We hold one another accountable. We point one another back to the truth. So we study love. Thirdly, we teach love. Now, the most effective way, beloved, to retain something is to teach it. There's always someone who knows less than you. Did you know that? Find a Christian who knows less than you and teach them something that you know that they don't, and you'll retain that truth more deeply. You see? Parents, teach your kids. A good place to start. You see, love for Christ like this in the Christian home must be taught and must be led, gentlemen, by you, by the men. This is our job, men. We're to teach the love of Christ. How do we do that? Well, you begin by teaching sound doctrine and your love for sound doctrine. You love sound doctrine because you love the author of doctrine. You hate erroneous teaching because you love the one who hates erroneous teaching, and that's Jesus Christ. You hate the deeds of those that are like the Nicolaitans just as Jesus hates them. He hates their deeds. And you will exemplify that as you teach your kids, as you rise up, as they lie down, as you walk along the wayside, taking whatever opportunity there is available to teach them and to grow them in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. They will see that you love Christ and you love his truth. Amen? Begins with you, man. Along with self-sacrificing love, they'll see that you spend time nurturing other believers, growing them in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That is teaching love. So a first love for Christ that is the priority of our lives here will inevitably or should drive us to serve, to obey, to lead in truth. The truth of his word. And that exemplifies love in many ways. Number four, model love. Model love. Ephesians 5, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself 
for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, this is why involvement and commitment to the local church is so important, beloved. It's vital. This is where Christ's love is taught. This is where it's nurtured. And don't forget this. This is where, this church, this is where it's tested (laughs) and modeled. You might have a problem with someone on the other end of the room right now. Your love will be tested in relationship to that person. Amen? It will be tested. You cannot grow in love without testing. You cannot grow in love without trials. You cannot grow in love without strains or tension. Because we have to submit more of ourselves to Christ in these areas. So it's through participation in the local church, not isolation from it, that this love is taught, it's caught, it's modeled, it's tested, and it's matured in the midst of the church's weaknesses and her faults. And you know why the church is weak and faulty sometimes, beloved, relationally? Because you're all here. Because we're all here together and we all have faults and we all have weaknesses. Amen? Come on, somebody. This is where grace must abound. And then finally, number five, the fifth principle or the fifth discipline in cultivating and or maintaining this kind of love is to guard this love. Guard this love. So we must be diligent to guard our love for Christ foremost and then one another. And the greatest obstacle in guarding this love, beloved, is this, the temptation of worldliness worldliness. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. James 4.4, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So he can dwell in you and you can be a friend of the world and he yearns jealously. That's where our heart can lead us, you see. That's why we have to be renewed every day by the word of God. Again, Alexander Strzok said this as I close. Quote, when I think of what it means to guard our love, the image that comes to mind is of an advertisement for a wedding dress. The advertisement showed a beautiful bride looking down at her dress admiringly. The caption read, love, love him, but love your dress more. I think, Strzok says, that this captures the temptation we sometimes face in our love relationship with Christ. We love him, but do we love the material possessions and blessings he gives us more? Amen, amen. Amen, amen, amen. Means let it be, let it be, let it be. So the church at Ephesus was commanded to repent of an abandoned love or suffer removal, meaning that the church can indeed forfeit its place of light-bearing ability and witness to the world. They will know you by your love for one another. And your love for one another is made manifest by the love that we have for Christ. It is a first love that must not be abandoned. So today is the day to take any decisive steps, beloved, that needs to be taken in order to return. Number one, remember. Remember how it used to be? Repent of any coldness. May we repent of apathy. May we repent of any idolatry that has taken his place due to a deceptive heart. May it be awakened. 
and then repeat the basics of Bible study, fellowship, humility, worship, and prayer, and then remain steadfast in the fight against error, against lies, and stand for the truth. Have you left your first love? Today would be a good day, beloved, to reestablish that relationship as it's supposed to be as we come to the Lord's table together, remembering. Remembering what he's done, amen? So I, I ask men that you'll stand and, and begin to distribute communion to the body this morning. And beloved, as they distribute the bread and the cup, I'm gonna ask that you simply listen as I read through a portion of each of the 13 chapters of Hebrews. I said a portion, small portion of each one of the 13 chapters, beginning with chapter one. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he's created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand in the majesty on high. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's not, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. 
In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is already ready to vanish away. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places by means of the blood, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For, by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's you. For all time. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that, was, that had no foundations, but whose foundations and designer and builder is God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so easily and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, he despised the shame, and seated now at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus also suffered, beloved outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. The Apostle Paul recites the glorious night in which the Lord Jesus sat with his disciples. He said, I received from the Lord... What I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So beloved, at this time, between you and the Lord individually, we together come to the table. We partake of the bread, we partake of the juice, which represents his broken body and his shed blood for you. Therefore, by one offering, he has sanctified forever. He's blessed forever. He's justified forever. He's cleansed forever. You who are in Christ being sanctified. Amen. So partake as you will. Well, our glorious Father, we thank you again for this time of fellowship. We thank you for this time of teaching. We thank you for the reminder of all that has been accomplished on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, that though we still struggle with our own flesh, we're capable of deceiving ourselves. But all the while, you indwell us, you empower us, you enable us. So may we be quick to test all of our thinking in light of the glorious illuminating truth of scripture, encouraging one another, lifting one another up in the truth to run this race, this race that is set before us with endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith. May you bless your people today, Lord, those who were perhaps convicted to be granted, Lord, a a special blessing as they remember, as they repent, as they repeat, and as they remain steadfast in the truth, the gift of salvation that was granted them. For those, Lord, who may 
misinterpret conviction for condemnation. I pray that those that are in Christ would not feel condemned, but would understand that your conviction is the product of your love. That they would embrace that love. They would embrace their first love, Jesus Christ. And for those who feel condemned because they rightly should feel condemned because they're not saved, they're not in Christ, Lord, I pray that you'll grant them repentance today. Open their eyes, enable them to believe, enable them to see that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no way to be saved but by your finished work, making provision, becoming a substitute for all who believe. We thank you and you praise you. May you bless your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.